Hey, it's Burton Chowlow. And this is Savannah Hart, and you're listening to the Black Box Podcast. That really is, is part of the insidious nature of homophobia. It isn't simply the slurs. It is also the elimination or the absence in the telling of our stories. It's like, oh, wait, we did this and we did that and we did this. And, and you find a sense of pride because you see representation. That's the same way it felt for me as a gay black man. I was like, oh, James Baldwin and, and Bayard Rustin, Langston Hughes. Oh, you ain't shut me up because you couldn't shut them up. This is the Black Box Podcast. Our guest is the great LZ Granderson of the LA Times. You can also find him on ABC News and ESPN Radio. LZ, thanks for joining the show. I'm stuck at great. <laughs> this is good for my ego. <laughs> yeah, I got it. You know, we go way back. So, like most people in my life that I go way back with, you either love me or you hate me, right? So, I think we got a little bit of both for us. So, I got I to gotta fluff you a little bit with the great. So, the okay, great right. LZ Granderson. Thank I'll, you. I'll take it. I'll definitely take it. Thank uh, you guys for having me. Yeah, of it's course. Not- Absolutely. Um, Elsie, it's a pleasure to have you here, um, especially as someone who I feel like represents our community in the media. And a lot of the times, you know, we have sports, we have entertainment, and we have so many performers and entertainers trying to push a certain agenda. You know, we have Black Lives Matter going on. And you being someone who represents our community. First of all, thank you. Um, and second of all, are there any hurdles that you feel like you that you encounter? Well, well, first of all, thank you for, you know, the kind words. Honestly, the thing that makes me most proud ties back to a throwaway Jay-Z lyric, which is basically I'm good or every MLK Boulevard. I love knowing that I'm good with my people. I, lo- I love knowing that my community thinks I'm doing a good job representing us with the platform. So thank you very much for that. That that just means a lot to me. And with that being said, hell yeah, there are hurdles. <laughs> I mean, which which one do you want to talk about? Because you know, I occupy you know a couple of different communities. You know, I'm LGBT, and obviously I'm also black, and both are very um, important to me and there's intersectionality so there are issues in which both are concerned with but then there's also some separations and then there are problems um, that are unique to both that I try to speak to and address and so when you're go- bobbing and weaving and trying to uproot long-rooted deep-seated um, biases um, you get a lot of pushback sometimes you get pushback from your employers or people that you're working with. Sometimes you get pushback from those who are reading or listening to what you're writing or saying. Uh, and I welcome the pushback because while I do know that I'm very um, genuine, that doesn't mean that I have all the answers or that I'm right. And it's only through criticism, do genuine criticism, not the trolls, but genuine criticism that I am able to get better. Because at the end of the day, my goal isn't for myself to be celebrated. It's equality. Well, what about what about criticism that's based in ulterior motives? What I really want to hear from you, because I'm interested in how the dynamics of corporate America work for your type of work, right? Like, you're not 
a sports reporter that just reports on the score of the game or you're not following race and politics in a way that's for lack of a better word only the facts it's really your opinion and really pushing your opinion and really pushing the narrative you believe in what is that pushback from your employers without getting you in trouble with from anybody because i know because you got a lot of jobs so i don't i don't want you to lose any a thousand jobs but I would say there is a healthy blend of fear and concern in the sense of, you know, when you start getting to highly emotional issues like race, for instance, religion, um, people don't want to risk alienating listeners or viewers yeah. or readers. That's where the capitalism comes in, right? That's where the capitalism comes in from. And that is usually the epicenter of the pushback. They're guarding the monetary aspects of it. And I'm trying to remind them that money should not be the only driver here and try to explain to them why. Because if you are a big tent, that's fantastic. But if you turn a blind eye to what's happening underneath your tent, then you're not really being a productive member of society, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, and I, what I mean by that is if you're placating to racism or homophobia because you want those people to give you money for your product, well, that might be good for the bottom line, but that still isn't good. <laughs> do you, th- do you, <laughs> you consider know? ignoring those subjects placating? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, because we never really ignore them. We don't ignore them. You know, we we recognize them. We're making a choice. We're making a conscientious choice. When you decide to um, something that seems as innocuous as not taking a, a camera shot of someone's partner in the stands while they're playing a sport, right? Now that seems harmless, right? Like, you know, like we don't want to, we don't want to upset people. So don't show their boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife in the stands, right? Just focus in on the sport. Now you may think, what's wrong with that? Well, I would say to you, nothing if it was equal. But if you're showing the spouses and husbands and boyfriends and girlfriends of heterosexual athletes, but you're not doing the same for the for the lesbian or gay ones. What you're doing is feeding into homophobia. And that homophobia is what has been handcuffing my community for decades and decades, if not centuries. So you think you're just doing what needs to be necessary to keep the money flowing in. And I'm trying to tell you, you're also doing what's what is the devil's work, in my opinion, and keeping the homophobia alive. You know, it's like it's, it's a difficult situation for them to navigate. And I understand that. But. It's also difficult being gay and wondering if you're going to get fired after you get married. That's not good yeah, either. Yeah, that's, that's not just difficult. That's fucked up that you have to think about that. <laughs> I mean, right? you know. I'm curious, LZ, if you ever, you know, because you, you spoke about, you know, not wanting to alienate a certain audience. Are you ever hesitant about speaking on homophobia, being that we still have some homophobia specifically within our black communities and you are representative and you talk so much of Black Lives Matter? And I feel like you're such a voice for that. So do you ever kind of worry about speaking about both? You know, I used to. 
when I was younger. <clears throat> and then I found out that um, Bayer Rustin was gay. I don't know and who that is. I'm not going to lie. Um, Bayer Rustin. Oh, do you don't know? I don't. Awesome. I love sharing the story. <laughs> so Bayer Rustin was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s mentor. Mm-hmm. He is the one that introduced him to nonviolence wow. uh, philosophy. He is the main organizer on the March on Washington. And the reason why you don't know him and a lot of people don't know him is because he was gay and the homophobia that you speak of was viewed as a distraction at best and a detriment at worst. And so many within the movement and certainly those outside of the movement um, or allies of the movement felt it was best if Bayer's contributions weren't talked about that much. He was also someone who was a Quaker. He spent some time in the Communist Party. And so when J. Edgar Hoover was looking for reasons to vilify the civil rights movement, um, Bayer was an easy target. He was openly gay. Let me repeat that. He was openly gay, working in this space during the 50s and the 60s, um, 40s too, 50s too. And he had, so he had you know, some affiliations with the Communist Party. And they decided, let's not talk about Bayer, the organizer of the March on Washington. Or when I read when I read that, I was like, oh, you mean to tell me we in the cut like that? <laughs> you, you, you mean to tell me that the March on Washington that everyone reveres was organized by an openly gay black man? Oh, I'm good. And that really is, is part of the insidious nature of homophobia. It isn't simply the slurs. It is also the elimination or the absence in the telling of our stories so that as we grow up, you know, we don't know where we are or, you know, who our people are, or where we should be headed next. And just like with um, African-Americans, with Black Americans and the need for Black History Month, it's like, oh, wait, we in the, we in the cut like that? We... We did this and we did that and we did this. And and you find a sense of pride because you see representation in the fabric of the society. That's the same way it felt for me as a gay black man. I was like, oh, James Baldwin and and Bayer Rustin, Langston Hughes. Oh, you ain't shutting me up because you couldn't shut them up. So that empowered me. But before I knew about Bayard, and I encourage everyone to see the documentary Brother Outsider, when I learned about him, that concern that you spoke of earlier went right out the window. Because who, who am I to, to, you know, to be silenced by homophobia when this man is on the front lines working with Dr. King, organizing this march, openly gay, and it's doing the damn thing. Did the hurdles, I mean, the hurdles didn't go away, right? Like, especially in sports, right? You're it, When you're covering... The male sports, right? When you're covering the male dominated sports that, you know, a large percentage of them are openly heterosexual and a percentage of that, whether it's large or not, I don't want to get into the psychoanalysis of what people are thinking unless they say it. A large percentage of them, if they're not homophobic, they have homophobic rhetoric, right? Um, so how do you, like, how do you sort of address that or you don't? Does that get in your way? Like, that, you know, part of your job, I imagine, is to connect with the subject matter you're covering, right? So is there a block sometime in that connection? 
Um, I always start from a place of grace. You know, I am here because of the grace of God and the grace of others. Um, and so I try to extend grace as much as possible. So you're right. There are people in sports who are homophobic that I, I you know, I have to deal with. Um, but there are people in the LGBTQ community who are homophobic, who are transphobic. And so just because you're of something doesn't mean that you are, you know, excused or don't have an ability to have some self-hatred going on. I mean, obviously, we know the same thing is true for racial minorities as well, as well. internalized racism. So when you see that the issue isn't heterosexual versus homosexual versus cisgender versus transgender, when you don't see that, but whether it's ignorance and fear versus enlightenment and love, then you can enter the conversation. Not all, I'm not going to make it all, you know, polyanny, but you can, you can enter it with a different sort of um, perspective. When Kobe was fined a hundred thousand dollars for uttering the gay slur to her as a referee, I was really upset about it because I love me some Kobe. And it reminded me like 10 years prior, I think it was when Ellen Iverson released an album that was full of anti-gay slurs. And I love me some Ellen Iverson. So I've constantly have been confronted with my love of ball in particular with the homophobia that sometimes oozes out. Now, when I play ball and someone drops like, you know, like a faggot or something like that in the court, I address it right away. You know, one, because I can play. So well, I know you, I can well, you go get a bucket real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do Okay. Um, But Elsie, I would I would love to revert back to um, what you're talking about with placating, because, you know, we had this, in my opinion, overly performative Super Bowl this year where just five years ago, you know, we had a blackballed Colin Kaepernick. In 2018, we had a Rihanna refusing to perform because she said she just she can't align with something that she doesn't believe in. And then literally the next year in 2019, we have Jay-Z meeting with Roger Goodell. And, you know, now we have basically an all black lineup of performers for the Super Bowl who don't get paid nonetheless. But it, <laughs> it feels it feels to me performative because when you still look at the NFL organization, we have no black majority owners. We have, I think, three black head coaches out of 32. So do you do you in your in your humble opinion, you've been part of the sports landscape and part of the politics landscape for some time. Do you feel like the NFL is actually committed to making real change or are they just trying to put a Band-Aid over a gushing wound with what they did with Kaepernick? I still believe and that's an excellent question because people do see the NFL's messaging now. And they see in racism on the back of Tom Brady's helmet and things like that. And sisters singing, lift every voice and sing and things like that. And I'm thinking, see, what are you guys complaining about? Exactly. Right. NFL loves the blacks. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, and let's, um, let's not forget the Inspire Change commercial where they had the, the whole Black Lives yeah. protest. Exactly, anyway. exactly. So I think what the NFL is still trying to do is play it both ways. They're trying to play it both ways because you're going to have a league in which the ownership overwhelmingly donates towards candidates whose policies and rhetoric do not speak towards equality for all people 
and in some cases um, vilifies people of color. Then on the other side, you're going to put in racism in your on your helmets and, and on your fields. You're trying to do both things. And while I don't want to get into much talking about like the former guy and I don't want to get too much talking about the current Congress, particularly in the likes of January 6th. Um, but I think we all can agree there's still a great deal of racism in our politics, in our leadership. And in our capitalism, in our capitalism, in our capitalism. Exactly. So if you're donating because you want those people to stay in office, you're also donating so that that rhetoric and worldview stays in power. That is completely counterproductive to any messaging about harmony and equality or singing and dancing that you can do during the Super Bowl. Yeah. So it feels as if the NFL is still trying to have it both ways. And to your point with Brother Kaepernick, I don't know if he at this stage can still be an effective quarterback because of the absence from the game. But I do know he's still worthy of an opportunity to try of a phone call for a tryout, a legitimate tryout, not that BS they did down in Georgia a couple of years ago when they kind of basically called him up like the week of and says, hey, come to this place. We won't let the media see any of the footage. We won't let the media see how you actually perform. We'll just tell them whether or not you're good enough. <laughs> I mean, why would we trust you to tell us the truth about Kaepernick when you've been lying and mistreating him all this time already? Right. From Jump Street. And in his case, and I'm not going to pretend to be some football expert. I have no idea whether a uh, quality of athlete standpoint, whether he should be on a roster or not. I think the, the, for me, the, the issue is he was robbed of compensation for a skill that he has because of political and racist thoughts towards him and what he stood for and what a lot of us and a lot of those athletes stand for and a lot of people that work for teams or for the league stand for um and it's obviously not standing for you know something that objectively is wrong right like there's nothing objectively wrong with equality it's not even a political issue but my my, my thought is i say all that to say you know he deserves his fucking money like that's where I think the compensation has to happen. I don't even well, honestly I, care I if he gets a trial. Didn't they had a settlement and it, they and they, they paid him out? And we don't know the details or the numbers because mm-hmm. he's not you allowed know? to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But normally, when there's a settlement, someone's guilty. I will just say that. No, in normal no. circumstances, that has been my experience as well. However, um, he took the settlement, so the information and the evidence won't have an opportunity to be shared in a court of law so that we all can bear witness to what what, happening, what was happening behind closed doors. But you're absolutely right. They didn't just take the salary money. They also took any potential endorsement money. They also took away any opportunity he may have had to become eventually a Hall of Famer himself and then be able to monetize that post-career because Hall of Famers get ex- incredible opportunities to do speaking engagements, right. get incredible opportunities. They robbed them to- of an opportunity to have a legacy that's longstanding, right? Like, they, and that window for athletes, and I don't want to spend too much time, it's, it's, it's not very big. So you, can- It's not very big, but the NFL um, took that from them. And there's nothing that they can really say to change the history. There are some things they can do to make his landing a little bit softer, but it would never replicate 
what might have been. You know, he could be a Super Bowl winning quarterback right now heading to the Hall of Fame had he may have had an opportunity to play over these last, what, four years now? Five, yeah. maybe, Five, at this point? Yeah. Right, and the, prime, and the prime of his athletic life. So uh, I'm going to go to a, I guess it's not a hard pivot, a soft pivot. I talked about the racism in certain capitalistic approaches. You talked about the NFL talking out of both sides of their mouth, for lack of a better way of saying it. My personal struggle has been balancing my capitalistic side and balancing where my morals and my ethics sit. But I'm also not interfacing with the world the way you are. So how do you do it? Starts off with prayer, and that's real talk. You know, I I try to make sure that either right away or certainly before I leave the house, I just spend some time just recalibrating my spirit and making sure that I'm not becoming arrogant, um, that I'm not becoming so focused in on what I think is important that I now have a blind eye to the needs and values of others. So I just pray for a lot of guidance and balance before I start my day, certainly before I get to the the teeth of my day. And once I've moved from there and I'm feeling good about where my values are, I try to make sure that I don't change them for money. And since we're being 100, uh, I know I've lost millions of dollars. I know I have. I 1,000% know that I never, to this point, have gotten like what other people with my skill set and experience um, at certain companies I've been, been at have gotten. Um, when I first started in this business and I wanted to get into sports, the sports editors would tell me in my face that they wouldn't hire an openly gay guy. I had three guys tell me that, three different newspapers. So right there from the 90s, I was already Which being... Which is federally inst- illegal, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. But that's... Yeah. No, it actually wasn't at in the, the time, 1990s. It, it wasn't? Um, and it actually is not illegal um, today. I can still, today, be in a state that does not have protections for LGBTQ people and be kicked out of my house or lose my job for being so. Today. We forget that from time to time because we got Will and Grace and Modern Family and people getting married on the coast and things like that. So we think we're further along than what we really are. The reality is, is that there are people who are fearful of coming out because they think they may lose their job today in this country today. So I've already experienced how my sexuality, my, my sexual orientation has limited me professionally. And as I said, I work for all these companies and I'm very, very grateful and thankful for it. And I'm blessed to be in the positions that I am. I'm also acutely aware of that glass ceiling that's been following me for the last 20 plus years. So you ask, how do I balance it? I balance it not through a monetary lens, but through an impact lens. Do I feel as if I'm changing hearts and minds? And when I'm at my lowest, and I was pretty low actually earlier this week, like really low, like listening to Lincoln Park low. 
<laughs> That's your go-to. This is one of them, and um, I was, you know, I lost someone who was close to me, and he was a fierce, fierce advocate. His name was Ari Gold, not the entourage guy, but the singer guy from New York. And I found myself sitting there asking if I'm doing enough. Am I working hard enough? Am I making a difference? And I got an email from someone who. You know, long story short, shared a story about how what I was doing helped their brother as their brother was coming out of the closet. And I thank God, you know, because it was a low point and I was going through my head, asking myself, you know, was this all worth it? Should I just got the bag, kept my mouth shut, you know, stick to sports, you know. And I saw that email and I was like, thank you, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm on the path. I'm on the path. You, you told me I'm so walk. And I'm going to stay focused with what I have and not spend too much time looking at what I don't have. I would love to talk about impact for a second Um, because I was talking to an NBA player yesterday about this whole topic of sports and politics. And his opinion was that, you know, the people, the only athletes that have the real impact are the people, are the athletes at the top with a lot of money, like the LeBrons and the Kyries. And I disagreed because I feel like I feel like attention is power. Um, so for you as someone who has seen the way that and if I'm not mistaken, you even said, you know, Trump in his era has literally politicized sports to the point where a team jersey can be synonymous with a MAGA hat. You said that in one of your articles. So for the athletes that don't really truly understand the way that they're targeted and leveraged in politics, what would you say to them so that they can truly understand their impact and their power? First of all, I think it is really sad that there are athletes in general, but athletes, particularly in the NBA, who feel as if they don't have a platform that's big enough to cause any or bring any impact to anyone's life. That really saddens me because that means either we as a media are doing too much focusing in at the top and not enough shining lights on everyone else so that they could see that. As I said earlier, representation matters. So representation of the hierarchy in the league matters as well. Or they've received a message from some people that they trust that what they do doesn't matter. And they believed it. Either way, I feel saddened by that because everyone, whether you're in the NBA or not, has a platform and opportunities to do good. Yeah, absolutely. And I would I would like to caveat that with the fact that this particular playing player that I'm talking about, you know, he does utilize his platform. He's, you know, actually started a charter school in Pennsylvania. But from a political standpoint to really have, I guess, impact, right? Like he feels as though, you know, the politicians are interested in the money aspect when it comes to sports. And I would disagree because I feel like it's the attention, right? Like if you have a if you have a politician running nine times out of 10, the only person that's going to actually listen to them are if it's a Democrat, it's going to be a Democrat. If it's a Republican, it's going to be a Republican. When the athlete speaks at the end of at the end of a game, wherever you have Republicans, Democrats, fascists, liberals listening. So that's power within itself, in my humble opinion. Yeah. And a lot of these guys, I thought. I'll say a couple things to add on to that, to this part of the conversation. A lot of the guys I thought did a great job in the bubble. When they wanted to talk about, they made it a point. 
I'm going to say what I'm going to say right now before you ask me a question about this fucking basketball game. And, you know, we can name the guys that were great about it, but together, the way they stood, and I was going to say this was one of my points, we, we, we're all in this together. And by we, I mean all of us that, you know, don't look at the anti-racist? Yeah, yeah, All basically, the right? Like, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I was going to be a little more diplomatic about it, but yeah, like, equality is not a controversial, or should not, let me say this way, right way, equality should not be a controversial conversation. It should not be a contentious conversation. It's really not that hard, mm-hmm. right? So, we're all in this together. That's one thing I wanted to say, and I think when the NBA players did it in the bubble, it was impactful. It can be LeBron James... But fuck, it could be, you know, I don't know, Lou Dort, who plays for the Oklahoma City Thunder, who most people probably don't know. They were doing it together, and it was, and that was impactful. All right, that's one point. The other point I was going to make is with athletes. What your friend or any young athlete that we have relationships with can really impact is their local community. You know, the idea that, and and, and I think athletes are getting better at it. I don't think I've ever in my life seen so many athletes and so many NBA players push for voting and push for local voting. Like more than ever, that has been a topic amongst athletes. And I think that's where change can really happen. To LZ's point, like we all have a platform, right? We all have an ecosystem. LeBron's ecosystem just happens to be exponentially bigger than my ecosystem and impact. But it doesn't mean that, you know, it's, there isn't that. And I think that is important for athletes. But again, pivoting back into the media part of it, where do you see your role in all of this being a member of the media? Do you see, you, you mentioned, okay, I feel sad when an athlete feels like this because maybe the media isn't doing a good job. But also, I, I guess there's two parts to this, role and responsibility. Like, how do you define your role and responsibility when it comes to this part? Because, again, you're covering sports, but you're not, again, not the score, scoreboard. You're covering the, the intersection of the race, the religion, the politics of sports. Uh, and you have a platform, right, with your ecosystem. So do you, do you, do you feel responsible for that? And if so, how? What, what is that responsibility? Absolutely feel responsible. You know, I don't. Uh, as I'm sure you can you can pick up now, um, you know I'm not a I'm not a it's all about me kind of guy. I'm a you know spiritual man and, and believe in in purpose. You know, right here on my desk, footprints right there, and I'm feeling a little low. So I I believe that God has you know blessed me to be in this position for a reason. And so the reason why I spend so much time in my prayer closet is because I don't want to screw it up. So I absolutely feel a responsibility to talk about these uncomfortable conversations as compassionately, but as forthright as I possibly can to expand the tent as much as I possibly can, but not in a way in which people underneath the tent feel as if they're being devalued by the presence of another. You know, we're all we're all going to be part of this great big circus tent, but we're going to treat each other with respect once we get inside. I don't know what you were like outside of the tent, but once you come under my tent, this is how we're going to deal with one another with respect and through equality. The responsibility to shine a light on what people of note are doing, whether they're athletes or singers or, or whomever, 
politicians. Um, I dig for those stories. Um, and I've always dug for those stories because I felt the role of journalism isn't to tell you what you already know. It's to shine a light on what you don't know. Yeah, and it's, it sounds like, I guess I was asking if you had bad bosses, but it sounds like you had good bosses. Oh, I had bad bosses. It's just that I didn't pay attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing my full-time right, gig right. at ESPN, and, and I would spend my weekends. And you're helping them on the digital build-out content. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I did that because I just believed in the work. It wasn't right. about the money for me, so I think that made it easier for them because they weren't paying me to do it anyway. Are there moments or a moment that sticks out to you where you're like, I should have said this, or I should have done it this way because I'm not being true to my work or I'm not being true to myself? Any of those moments? There are two moments I can think of that greatly shaped my work ethic, if you will. Um, The first moment, I was a young reporter. Um, This is like, Maybe it's 25 years ago now. Um, and when you work in newspapers and you're on the come up, at certain points, you have to work the police desk. And usually it's an overnight shift. And so I was on by myself, me and the police scanner, and maybe the rats downstairs. Where is this? This is in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was Grand Rapids Press. Um, love that family. To this day, love that family. And um, I got, I, I, I heard about a car accident. And... I called the police, wrote up a really, really small brief about the head-on collision, except I had the cars wrong. I blamed the wrong person for going the wrong way down the street. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. I was trying to like hurry up and get it done, and I wasn't careful. That's a big fact to get wrong. Big fact to get wrong. And I was devastated because this family has already lost a loved one, and then I blamed the loved one, right? So my editor... Um, John Barnes told me to drive out like an hour or so away where the family lived and apologize to their face. And I did. Drove out, apologized to their face, manned up, owned up to my state. And, you know, they thanked me and we, we chatted and talked. And I cried all the way back for an hour straight about the pain that I caused those people. And that was the lesson that I followed to this day which is it's better to be right than to be first. You're in a position where you're writing stories that are not based on I beat Woj to a fucking breaking news, right? So this is important stuff that I need to make sure I get right. And then the second thing, um, I wrote a piece about the Obama administration that was really poorly worded. My sentiment, I still believe in, but I said something along the lines of don't be nosy about the fast and furious um, controversy. We have to trust that we aren't supposed to know all of the government secrets. Why well, have secret service or anything you know, like that? Like, and it, it was poorly worded, and so it made it seem as if we need, we need not worry about President Obama possibly doing something wrong. We just needed to trust him, which wasn't what I was trying to communicate. But it was the lesson that I learned not to be so fast and loose with my words. Because if I'm not careful, I could put a message out there that is not what I meant and could be used to discredit me or worse yet, discredit people who are in much greater positions than I am. Yeah. And discredit the actual voice that you're trying to amplify or the actual narrative. Do, do you know why you went too fast or, or, or misworded that? Yeah, I was, I was being clever. 
you know, or thought I was being clever, you know, when sometimes I just needed to just be a, little, a lot more direct, a lot clearer as to what I was saying. And, you know, a lot of um, conservative media jumped on that. And I think those stories still circulate to this day, you know. CNN columnist, you know, gives Obama you know, a pass, blah, 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 which was not the case at all. Right. I was pretty forthright in my critique of the Obama administration from day one, particularly when it pertained to LGBTQ issues in that first term. Remember, he didn't come out and support marriage equality until after Uncle Joe did it. Yep, yep, know? yep. So I was very, very you know, forthright in criticizing him when I thought it was necessary. But because I was a little too lax on a very important subject matter, which is ultimately journalism holding government accountable for their actions. I presented a narrative that isn't what I felt, but it certainly is a way that could have been interpreted based upon my own poor approach to illustrating or or communicating what I was thinking. It's obvious that like that intersection of sports and politics, sports and religion or, or race has, this is not a new convergence at all um but i think my opinion is my very amateur opinion is that it has been um amplified uh whether it's because of you call him the other guy or the former president or or because of you know having a first black president or what or, or now it's really like athletes taking control of the conversation Whatever the reasons are for the amplification, I'm wondering where you think, as a person in the middle of it, literally in, you called it the teeth, in the teeth of it, where do you think this goes from here? I do believe there is a little bit of a civil war that's going on, to be quite honest with you, Um, because of the pandemic, because of the change in technology, um, because of just the change in the global economy. You consider, um, you know, the NBA's relationship with China, for instance. Um, there is a bit of a civil war brewing between people who are trying to appease our shareholders and, you know, the, the money aspect of it. And this push to do the job that journalism hasn't done yet, which is tell these hard stories with people of color and LGBTQ people and people who have always been pushed to the side or minimized are now fully embraced and their voices are equally amplified as everyone else's. Because before you talked about, you know, subjective versus objective and you're absolutely correct. We all are more or less still handcuffed to our own experiences you can take. I don't. I don't look at it as a bad thing. I didn't mean to put a negative. No, 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 no it's yeah. not a bad thing. Right, but you right. can take a hundred people, walk them into a park, and you might get a hundred different things when you ask what you saw. That's why diversity is important because you want to make sure that you have as many different perspectives on the world that we're living in as possible. But journalism in general is still so overwhelmingly cisgendered, heterosexual, and white that there has been a inadvertent effect in terms of maintaining a white supremacist status quo as a result of it. You know, news coverage telling you that the person who broke into the house is a black male, but when a white person does it, it's just, we're looking for a man. They don't mention that the person happens to be white. 
you know, OJ Simpson gets, you know, mugshot gets darkened on the cover of what was it, Time Magazine? Time, it time, yeah. Who's doing that? You know, the Tiger Woods cover, I believe it was Golf Magazine or Golf Weekly or one of those, where they had the noose and asking, how do you catch a tiger? And because they didn't have any people of color in that decision-making area to say, you know, black people in nooses really isn't a good idea. <laughs> no one stopped them, right? So there's been like this perpetuating inadvertent, sometimes, you know, consciously, but I would like to think mostly, you know, subconsciously perpetuating this white supremacist sort of narrative. And now media themselves are, are, are having to readjust and recalibrate what leadership looks like, whose voices are being amplified, who, sh- who we be hiring, and which stories should we be covering. Managing that change while also still appealing a capitalistic system, to your point, that requires that we hit certain dividends, certain margins. So you see that change happening? Like, I, you know, I asked you to look into your crystal ball. You see that? I mean, that answer suggests that you'd see changes happening. The browning of this country is happening whether, you know, proud boys are afraid or not. This right. is happening. Right. So the question is, when will those in power realize that you can do both? That you can still include voices that are diverse and representative of this country and still make money. You know, it's not like, you know, I think right now it's still be considered one or the other. Yeah. Don't don't we have like the biggest buying power in America? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about like like color and minorities and the browning that you talk about, I mean, if you start looking at the actual numbers and the facts. I mean, you're going to make more money. But man, listen, Hollywood just figured that out. I know. You're right. It's well, slow. Hollywood it's slow. just figured out that black people and Latinos, like we, they got, we, we got money too. Yeah. And you, if you actually made movies for us, we would actually go and support those movies too. <laughs> in numbers, right? Like remember when Black Panther came out, like, I mean, in numbers, people will go. You're seeing a change, it's, but there's a civil war because there are people who have built their entire world around the old model and they see their world changing. And I will also say, I feel like media is slightly being democratized because of social media. A lot of the times, like my generation, I'm millennial and the generation after me, Gen Z, we get, we get our news from social. To be honest with you, LZ, I wasn't familiar with you, unfortunately, before this podcast. And I'm someone who I consider myself to be actively looking for information, particularly around information like this. So the fact that I didn't hear about you until someone of your generation had told me. She calling you old, LZ. That's what she's doing. She's calling you I, I old. Take, trust me, I, I take no offense at all. I just, I, I think that I would love to, um, you know, I think a push towards, you know, your overall vision of where we can go. I think... You know, you guys can really you have an opportunity to close the gap with reaching the audience, especially an audience that, you know, as Elaine Welteroth put it, and I love her, you know, came out the womb with their fist up. And that's Gen Z. You know what I'm saying? So, like, for you to directly be able to connect with those people like that's social media, do you feel like you utilize or leverage social media enough or any of these outlets do? Um, Well, from a personal perspective. Um, I'm sure I probably could um, be better at utilizing social media. It's just I'm busy trying to save folks' lives. 
<laughs> no big deal. Not, you know, <laughs> no, I'm, no big deal. <laughs> I'm trying to you no, know, do my yeah. reporting. So when I talk on issues of the privatization of prisons or the death penalty, that I'm a person who is coming from a place of knowledge and not doing drive-by, you know, drive-by commentary. You know, I, I, I hate drive-by commentary. Um, I think it does a disservice to the issues at hand. But more importantly, um, it just devalues the overall conversation because you didn't bother taking it seriously enough to learn as much as you can before you opened your mouth. So I, I spent a lot of time on the reporting aspect of it. But you're right. I certainly probably could do more. I have no idea how many followers I have on social media. I do what I do and I send it out. I've had editors tell me to do better. I've had producers tell me to do better. I think I'm doing better. I'm just doing better for me. I'm not doing better in the general sense of better, but I'm doing better for me. Yeah, I think that, you know, your editors and producers are saying that from, a, again, a capitalist standpoint, more eyeballs. I think Savannah's saying it from an impact standpoint. She She's a millennial. Is, is I, I don't know any of the labels. I just know I'm old. Um, she's a millennial that's impacted by the type of stuff you do. And I think that's her point, right? Like she's now fully aware of you and wants to be impacted by someone like you. That's who's, who's thoughtful and, and, and trying to do the actual work. So you can find, follow him on Twitter. You can find him at LZ Granderson. I actually follow him and I, th- I think he follows me back. I used to have this crazy name, Locks and Laughs. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I do remember that. I love that. <laughs> I used to go by Locks and Laughs and I had underscores and everything because we were being forced to do social media and I thought this was my way of rebelling. And then my agent at the time called me up and was like, what are you doing? Like, no one's doing underscores and all this stuff to find you. Like, <laughs> Advice, Elsie. I think that you, one, the reporting is is the substance. But I feel like just off of this pod, if we're big enough, you could easily just have a Gen Z intern that is so down with the movement and would be willing to chop up whatever your content is and make it, you know, applicable to and or attractive to millennials and Gen Zs. And that's the easy way to just do what you're doing and also touch the Gen Z audience. You can find LZ at LZ Granderson uh, on Twitter. I don't know if you're on, are you on IG. I'm on IG. At the LA Times, watch him at ABC News, listen to him on ESPN Radio. LZ or Sedano, LZ and Kaplan on ESPN LA. You can download the podcast. You go to um, the ESPN under audio, you'll see us there. Yep. And yeah. Read them, listen to them, follow them. Soak it in. Um, soak it in. LZ, appreciate the time. Thank you. Candor, the love, all that stuff. Hope to see you soon, man. Appreciate your time and your energy. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow us on all social channels at The Black Box Pod. The show would not be possible without our team. Special thanks to our producers, Amanda Berkowitz and Katie McGuigan. Our video director, Paul Aspen. Music by Ye Ali. Design by Lineage Digital. All photos by Jonathan Gabriel Charles. And our production house, Gotham Podcast Studio in New York City. Special shout out to Raul Hernandez. We'll see you guys next time.